If you do have a Bible, let's go to the book of Acts, chapter 28. We're going to finish our eight-month-long series through the book of Acts. This is the last one. It's one of those sad feelings I have because um, ever since I've been a pastor, I've always wanted to preach through the book of Acts. I never had the opportunity, and uh, we did this year. And, but it's coming to an end, and it's just sad for me, to be honest with you. I'd rather just go back and like, then preach on the stuff I left out, and it would be a lot of fun, but you'd be bored. So we're going to move on. But anyways, we're going to be in Acts chapter 28. This is the finale. This is the end. This is how it all wraps up. And as we're going to see, it doesn't wrap up to our satisfaction, but that's going to be okay. That's just a little um, hint for what's coming. Here's the reality is um, all throughout the book of Acts, there's been one theme that has been just, uh, just rising to the surface. Uh, as I read it and as I think about it and study it, there's just one theme that I think we need to make sure that we take home. And it's this. As disciples of Jesus, we are sent to be faithful witnesses of the gospel of the kingdom of God, which is in Christ Jesus. But we're to do so through the Holy Spirit. And so there's a lot of concepts there, but it's always through the Holy Spirit that you and I as disciples of Jesus are sent out to faithfully proclaim the gospel of God's kingdom, which has been established and continues in the person of Jesus Christ. That's the centrality of what the book of Acts is all about. The power of the spirit, the person of Christ, the sovereignty of God, the fact that we as disciples need to be faithful witnesses to go out and multiply disciples. And now we get to our conclusion. So let me pray for us and we'll jump right in. And Father, thank you for your faithfulness to us. Thank you for the season that we have this year um, with Christmas and just contemplating the majesty, the magnificence of your plan of redemption. And yet at the same time, just that irony of you being the king of all kings has come as a baby in a manger. God of the universe made man. Thank you, God, for being as majestic as you are and yet coming as a human being with armpits and things like that. It's just mind-blowing. The God who created water thirsted. The God who created bread, hungered, and you did that for us. So God, thank you for all that you are. And I pray that our time together will be rich. You would bless it. Grant us the spirit in abundance to help us to perceive and understand the things in your word that you have laid out for us. So God, be faithful to your people and encourage us. We love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, verse 11, chapter 28. If you remember, Larry preached last week about Paul, how he began his voyage um, to uh, Rome, and there were some issues, as you remember. Uh, he got shipwrecked was one of the issues. People almost drowned. They floated onto the island of Malta. Once he got to Malta, they were cold, and so they kindled a fire. They got a fire going, and uh, there's Paul grabbing a bunch of sticks and stuff to throw into the fire, and as he threw it out there, a viper came out and bit him on the hand, and people start freaking out, thinking, oh, man, this guy is seriously guilty of some sort of sin, and then he just shakes it off into the fire, and everyone's staring at him, and nothing happens, and I just picture them roasting s'mores, and I know that's not true, but it's just the way I envision it. And the whole time, they're just kind of one eye on Paul, like, this guy's going to kill over any second, and he doesn't. And so people are just shocked and surprised, and then they want to worship him. They're like, well, this guy got bit by a viper. He must be divine. There's no way anyone could endure that. Uh, Paul is healing people, and uh, in response to all this, they give him all that he needs for his trip to Rome, 
And that's where we pick it up. He's leaving the island of Malta aboard a ship with all the supplies that he needs to make his uh, trip to Rome successful. Verse 11. After three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island of Malta, a ship of Alexandria, and the twin gods as a figurehead. Now, you know, as I like, to, I like to preach, I like to read stuff and then say stuff. And so I'm going to say stuff now. So, we're, <laughs> so I, I was reading this and I'm thinking to myself, why in the world would Luke give us such, such an obscure bit of information? as to the design of the image that is on the front of the ship. I know you probably don't think that way, but that's how I think. I'm like, what, what is he doing? What is that all about? So I did some research on it, and I started to realize that that is significant what Luke is doing. The twin gods, the, the twin gods who had their figurehead there, are two gods named Castor and Pollux, and they're a part of Greek and Roman mythology. They're the gods that the seamen aboard the ship would oftentimes inquire of and pray to in the midst of violent, raging storms. So think about it for a second. You're on a ship, and all of a sudden the waves are breaking in over the sides, and you're wondering, man, is this ship going to break up? Am I going to die? Are we going to drown? What's going on? So you fall on your knees, and you begin to pray and ask for Castor and Polex to come to your rescue. Now, the irony of that is what just happened? What, what did Paul just encounter? And not to mention the fact that Aristarchus and Luke were Paul's traveling companions. What did they just experience? They experienced difficulty upon the seas. But if you notice, it wasn't the God of Castor and Polex who rescued them. It was the living God, Yahweh, as his name is in the Old Testament, the true God. He's the one that came to Paul's rescue. And so I started thinking about that, and I thought, you know what, throughout the Bible, why this is important is throughout the Bible, there's always this contrast. There's always this contrast between the living God and those things that are not God. We call them idols, or Paul calls them vain things. And what's really interesting, starting in Genesis 3.15, we have this promise that even though Adam and Eve have fallen into sin and they've corrupted themselves in the created world, we have this promise that one day there's coming an offspring of, of the woman who will crush the head of Satan and there will be enmity between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of Satan. And that is why Christmas was so important. Because for thousands of years, the, the Israelite people, the nation of Israel, the Jews, they were waiting and anticipating for this offspring to come to rescue them from sin and to crush the head of Satan. And guess what? Galatians 4.4 4 says that Jesus is that offspring. And so there's enmity between the people of God and Jesus himself versus the people who are not God's people and that which stands against Jesus. There's always this opposition. There's always this battle between the two. And so what Luke does is he reminds us that, that God just rescued Paul and them on the high seas and provided for them and did amazing, miraculous things. And the irony is they're boarding a ship with these two gods on the, on the bow of the, the ship. And I just imagine them walking aboard kind of looking at that going, this is, this is stupid. These aren't gods. God is God. And, and what's amazing about that is... Sometimes we read that and we kind of mock these folks, kind of like, oh, what's wrong with these people? They're ridiculous. And I realize, you know, today, we have idols just like they have idols. In times of hardship and stuff, 
we actually turn to things which are not God as well. And we have to make sure that we understand that idolatry in the Bible isn't exclusively idols that you can touch. Like if I took this piece of wood and I carved an image out of it and I bowed down before, that's not the only kind of idols there are. In fact, Ezekiel chapter 14, verse 3, this is where God is speaking to Ezekiel about the nation of Israel. And this is what he said. He says, son of man, these men, the leaders of Israel, they have taken their idols into their hearts. Now, you have to remember this. It wasn't that they cut open the chest and ripped it open and started plunging a wooden like, statue in their heart. That's not how it worked. Instead, they took this thing that was there. It was physical or non-physical, and they treated it like the most precious thing they'd ever had or experienced. That is idolatry. Tim Keller in his book, Counterfeit Gods, explains it like this. He says, what is an idol? Well, it's anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give you. An idol is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living anymore. An idol has such a controlling position in your heart that you can spend most of your passion and energy, your emotional and financial resources on it without even a second thought. Here's the important part. It can be family and children. It can be a career and making money or achievement and critical acclaim or saving face and social standing. Or it can be a romantic relationship, peer approval, competence and skill, security and comfortable circumstances. It could be your beauty. It could be your brains, a great political or social cause, your morality and your virtue, or even success in Christian ministry. All of these things can be idols. And he says this, an idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I just had that, then I'll feel like my life has meaning. Then I'll know that I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. And he concludes by saying there are many ways to describe that kind of relationship to something, but perhaps the best way of describing it is worship. Now, think about that. That's, that's oh, man, that's a whole sermon in itself. The idolatry of the human heart is complex, it's diverse, it's varied. And oftentimes it's the very thing that keeps us from being obedient to God. The things that we value most. So idolatry are those things that if you were to lose them, you wouldn't know how to continue with life. Or it's the things that you think, man, if I can just have that, then my life will be fulfilled. And that can be a whole array of things. In our culture today, what we're most susceptible to, I think, in the Christian church is the idolatry of family, especially children. Let me give you an example. Many of you know I, I coached my son's baseball team. And uh, over the years, we competed against other teams and had uh, our own teams over the years. And one of the things I noticed that I find um, kind of tragic is the parent who is finding their identity and self-worth in the performance of their child because they have some like long lost desire to, you know, like, I don't know, live vicariously through their children. So they weren't very good at a sport. So they're gonna ensure that their children is super good at a sport. So that way when the, the kid plays super good at sports, then all the parents a shower accolades on the children and they selfishly will take those accolades upon themselves and they won't say, wow, my child is really good. They'll say, wow, what a great parent I am. You get that? And not only that, but sometimes you hear this and this is, I think funny, but not funny, serious, but like, ha <laughs> funny. 
It's when you have children and you're going into a place like church or you're going into a special place and you have to hold their hand and you tell them, now I want you to behave when we get in there. You said that before? (laughs) Why do we have to tell our children to behave in public? It's because if they go into public, just think about it. If they go into public just acting a fool and you have to discipline them in front of everyone, what does that say about you as a parent? Now you're beginning to think, oh, my goodness, if this kid acts crazy, I'm going to have to do something. And if I have to do something and everyone's going to be watching, they're going to be thinking about me. And then my parenting style and my ability as a parent and my value as a person because of my parent, parenting and whether or not my kid is obedient, all of that is dependent upon their obedience. You better behave because mommy or daddy's reputation's at stake. You guys get that? So one of the fears that many people have for serving the church, serving in missions and things like that, is it rubs up against our idolatry. The biggest obstacle to missionaries being sent out in the world, I've been told by multiple missionaries, are Christian parents who are scared to death that their children might get hurt or their children won't be successful because they won't go to college and get a good job and make money. What kingdom are we seeking? Do you see what's happening here? So right when Luke gets to verse 11, he's like, look, the living God is in whom we place our trust. I'm not placing my trust. I'm not placing my hopes and my dreams in a wooden carved by man figurehead on the front of a boat. I'm not putting my hopes and dreams in a career. I'm not putting my hopes and dreams in money. I'm not putting my hopes and dreams in my children. I got to put it in God or else I'll never be satisfied. And so that's what Luke is trying to do is get it in our minds that he's picking up on a theme that plays out all throughout scripture from beginning to end. And I love Isaiah 44. One of my favorite texts about this. I got to go through this kind of quickly because we're... Short on time, not right now, but like, okay, here we go. He's talking about the fact that there are carpenters who will cut down a tree. Look at these logs right here and get a mental image. They'll cut down a tree. And then what he says, and starting in verse 16, actually, he says this. Half of it he burns in the fire, and over the half he eats meat. He roasts it and satisfies it. And he also warms himself saying, aha, I'm warm. I've seen the fire. So imagine this. A carpenter takes a log and cuts down a tree, takes half of the tree, bisects it, takes this half, cuts it up into firewood, warms himself and cooks food on it. And the other half of the wood, here's what he does, verse 17. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, deliver me for you are my god. Verse 19. No one considers nor is there knowledge or discernment to say half of it I burned in the fire. I also baked bread on its coals. I roasted meat and have eaten How shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? Verse 20, he feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray and he cannot deliver himself or even say, is there not a lie in my right hand? Think about it. It's like we don't have the ability to soberly evaluate our lives. We cut a log up. Half of it we use to burn in the fire. Half of it we use to warm ourselves and to cook meat with. The other half we make into an idol, put it down before us and begin to worship it without ever stopping and thinking, wait a minute, that's not God. I made that. Likewise, your children are not your God. You made them. Your career is not your God. Your money is not your God. And we need the times, at times, I think Christmas is a perfect time to do this. Remember, you hear it all the time. The real reason for the season, right? The real meaning of Christmas. What is it? It's Jesus. Jesus has come. But you know what? He came exactly as we wouldn't expect it. Not as a king. 
full of pomp and circumstance and trumpets. He came born in a manger, ordinary old stable with ordinary old animals. He didn't come with unicorns, like lining him. He came with things like goats, just so ordinary. We never would have expected it. And that's what Christmas is about. It's not about we building our kingdom and we accumulating all these treasures in hopes that they satisfy us like God can satisfy us. Instead, Christmas is all about not how man gets to God, but how God has come to man. And the fact that he's come to us and has welcomed us as wayward sinners and aliens and people who hated God and enemies of God, he has welcomed us into relationship with himself. That rubs against our idolatry. And in fact, the rest of the text that we're, we're going to see, it's going to rub up against certain idolatry things because we're going to focus in on a concept called hospitality. So let's pick it up, verse 12. So putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days. From there we made a circuit and arrived to Regium. And after one day, a south wind sprang up, and on the second day we came to Puteoli. Man, I messed that up every service. It was only the second one, but so okay, twice. There we found some brothers, or in other words, some Christians. And we were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, they came as far as the form of Apius and three taverns to meet us. And on seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. So Paul arrives in Puteoli. And what's amazing about it is he finds Christians, and without a blink of an eye, they invite him to stay with, they invite him to stay with them for seven days. Seven days. There's movies made where in-laws show up to your house unexpectedly, and the whole movie is about trying to get rid of them. You know what I'm talking about. This is the opposite of that. Paul showed up unannounced, and they're going, great, come stay with me. Eat my food, sleep in my house, great. Hospitality. They came as far away as 38 miles away to meet Paul. Now, they didn't have cars. And so, you know, in some ways that's kind of a shame on us when we don't go to small group because we don't want to drive five miles. They're walking 38 miles to be with Paul. That's crazy. And you notice how Paul's encouraged. He sees them, he thanks God. And he took courage, or in other words, he was encouraged. It doesn't mean that Paul was discouraged. It just simply means that on seeing them arrive and come to him, he was filled with encouragement. He was just so overwhelmed with joy. And do you notice the direction to which he casts his gratitude? He doesn't do it towards the people. He does it towards God. Realizing that every good gift is from the Father of lights. Every good gift. So if you are ever the recipient of any good gift of hospitality from anyone, the proper response is not only to say thank you to them, but to th say thank you to God. Because he's the one that has given that to them to give to you. It's a means. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture. But I also think it's really important for us to understand that every time you see hospitality commanded in the New Testament, you see it in the context of love. Look at this in Romans chapter 12, verse 9. Paul writes, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. If you stop there and just ask yourself the question, how can I love my fellow Christians? 
Romans 12 is a great place to start. Continues, do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit and serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Verse 13, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Hospitality. Remember, hospitality isn't where you just put out doilies and finger foods, where it's just like quiche, mounds of quiche everywhere. Hospitality is where you utilize your resources to meet the physical, emotional, and spiritual needs of those around you who may or may not already be family or friends. Okay, so hospitality is utilizing what you possess in the service of someone else. That's hospitality. God, this is what I have. God, help us to identify with wisdom how to use it. And then whoever needs it, grant it to them. That's hospitality. And it's always in the context of love. Let's, let's look at this in 1 Peter chapter 4. Above all, Peter says, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Verse 9, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. There's a lot of grumbling when it comes to hospitality. I don't want people in my house. My house is dirty. Or I don't want people in my house. I give you all my food. And I tell you what. Um, Heather and I believe that this kind of uh, hospitality ministry is one of the most effective ways to minister to people with the gospel. You know, before I became a Christian, I, I lived just without knowing anything about anything when it comes to Christianity. And then I was uh, befriended by a youth pastor and a couple other guys in the youth ministry when I was a senior in high school. And they shared with me the gospel. But not only that, I was always invited to Chris, the youth pastor's house. He and his wife, Pauline, always invited me over. And we would play Settlers of Catan, and we'd play hearts, and we'd play board games and all kinds of stuff. And we would eat spaghetti and food, and we would just hang out until late at night. And there'd be times where Pauline and Chris would say, you know what, we're tired, man. We're going to bed. Lock up when you leave. And we're like, all right. And so when Heather and I got into full-time ministry, we, you know, I look back at the way I became a Christian because I heard about Jesus, but I didn't necessarily believe in Jesus until I saw Jesus in the lives of those who kept inviting me to their house. And I thought to myself, well, if God is so generous that he gave his one and only son, then I'm seeing all these people so generous and giving their one and only popsicle and giving their one and only, you know, like bowl of spaghetti to me, their one and only home. And I was just floored by that kind of love. I was floored by that kind of generosity. And I started to realize, no, man, the gospel's real. It's absolutely real. And I became a Christian in January 1999. It was amazing. And what's really interesting is when Heather and I got into full-time ministry, we realized, you know what, that's the most effective way to do ministry. And so we opened up our house every Thursday night to college students. And they came in and they grazed through our refrigerator like a horde of locusts and... <laughs> And they drank our stuff. They sat on our couches and we played board games and we talked and we watched TV. We did all this stuff. You know what? God bore so much fruit through that kind of ministry. It was beautiful. And that's the kind of stuff that, that Paul is, and Luke is painting for us in the ministry of Paul and his lifestyle is we love one another, serve one another, show hospitality with one another because in doing so, we demonstrate the gospel. We demonstrate the eager hospitality of God to welcome sinners into relationship with him, to be adopted as his own, and to inherit what it is he has to offer. That's hospitality. God is the greatest and most hospitable person in the universe. And when we are hospitable, we demonstrate for a watching world what kind of God we serve. We get that? It's amazing. 
All right, let's move on. Verse 16. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. Remember, the soldier is Julius. So they come into Rome. They find a, a little flat. They find a little studio apartment. I don't know what it is, but they found some place to live. And then in verse 17, after three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews. Now, what Paul wants to do is get together all the leaders of the Jews who are in Rome so he can share with them. And I think it's interesting. He shows up and he spends three days doing something. And I jokingly kind of tongue-in-cheek, like, I wonder what he did during those three days. Because they didn't have Ikea back then. So that he couldn't go to, like, make an Ikea run and then set his house up and get it all ready and light the candles and get ready to have people over. But I think what he was doing was probably praying and getting his mind and heart ready to share the gospel with these folks for three days. I think that's good. And so he gathered them up and he says this to them. What Paul's going to do is he's going to share his story about why he's in chains. He's going to talk about why he's in prison. And he said, brothers... Though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. And we'll stop there. What, what Paul's doing is making sure that these folks understand he was accused by the Jews and when he was brought forth before the Romans, they found nothing worthy of the death penalty. He could have been released. But if he would have been released, he understood that the Jews were going to kill him anyways. So he made an appeal to Caesar for his protection and to ensure that he gets to Rome. And he wants to make sure that these folks in, in Rome understand. It says at the end of verse 19, I had no charge to bring against my nation. Paul is not the accuser. He is the one being accused. Or in other words, Paul saying, look, I'm not abandoning my heritage. I'm not abandoning my history. I'm not abandoning my forefathers. That's not who I am. And the reason he says that is verse 20. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. So in Paul's mind, he does something very strategic. He wants to make sure that these Jews in Rome understand that he's not abandoning his heritage. Instead, he is proclaiming the fulfillment and the hope that his people have always had. Namely, they've always anticipated and wanted and hoped for the Messiah to show up. And guess what? He has. His name is Jesus of Nazareth, born in Bethlehem. And so Paul is proclaiming the hope of Israel. And you know what? This is Paul's strategy. In Acts chapter 20, verse 24, we, we get from Paul's own lips what his purpose was in life. He says, I do not count my life of any value, nor is precious to myself. If only I may finish my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Paul understood that his whole life's ambition from the point he met Jesus on is to proclaim the gospel of God's grace, the good news that we are invited into relationship with God. That was his ambition. And yet here in verse 20, he says the reason why he's in, in prison and in chains is not because he's preaching Jesus, but because he's preaching the hope of Israel. What does that tell us? That tells us that the hope of Israel and Jesus as the Messiah crucified and risen from the dead for our salvation, they're the same. It's the same. And so Paul wants these Jews to understand, I want you guys to get this. I'm in prison because of the same hope that you have. You're hoping for the Messiah to come. Guess what? He's come. 
And we see that picked up in Acts 24, verse 14, where Paul says, I confess to you that according to the way which they call a sect, he's speaking to Felix. He says, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God which these men themselves expect, except that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. What Paul does in the audience of all these Jews, he says, look, I have a hope in God. My hope in God is that there is a resurrection from the dead, both for the just and the unjust. If you believe in Jesus, you are justified and you will be risen to new life in a new creation with God forever. If you do not believe in Jesus, you will be resurrected, but you will still remain unjust, which means you are not justified by the blood of Jesus. Therefore, you will be risen to new life, but it will be an everlasting life of destruction in a place called hell, away from Christ. So that's the hope of Israel. And he says, this is according to the law and prophets, and these Jews, they actually believe that. And you notice what he's doing. He's, he's, he's sharing the gospel with them, and he's saying, look, you and I both have the same foundation of authority. I'm saying this based on something you already think is true. And in Acts 26, he does the same thing to King Agrippa. And I think this is so significant. Because in Paul's mind, the hope of Israel has been promised by God in the Old Testament, according to the law of Moses and the prophets, that there's coming a day where the offspring of the woman, the Messiah, will come, vanquish evil, and make everything right. That's the hope of Israel. But if you notice in verse 20, he doesn't unpack all the details of that yet. He doesn't really go into it very deeply. Verse 21, we see the reaction of these guys, though. They said to him, we have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from, uh, from you what your views are. For with regard to the sect, which is the way called Christianity, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. So the Jews respond with a willingness to hear the gospel, which is really cool. This is not a bait and switch thing that Paul's doing. Hey, if you come over to my house for cookies, it'll be great. And then you have set out cookies. Oh, by the way, oh, what is this? I just want to pop this DVD in. Oh, push play. Oh. And then it's an evangelistic sermon that you force your neighbors to watch. And they're going, oh, I see what just happened here. You know what I'm talking about? I was the product of that for much of my high school years. Where people didn't share the gospel with me until they earned the right to share the gospel with me. And instead, there was all this bait and switch stuff. Phil, you should come over to this basketball tournament. All right. So I would go to the basketball tournament, and guess what? We couldn't even play the basketball tournament until I listened to a 20-minute um, evangelistic sermon. And then in between every game, it was more, and I'm realizing, you invited him here not to play basketball, but try to convert me. I'm out. What are you doing? That's not Paul's strategy. Paul's strategy is not bait and switch. Paul's strategy is an authentic interest in the relationship of the people he wants to share the gospel with. That's why he invites them over to his house. Look at this in verse 23. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in great numbers. You see that? They're showing up on purpose. We want to hear from you, Paul, what it is you have to say. And we're willing to come and speak to you about it. And they came in great numbers. And so Paul shares with them. Verse 23. From morning until evening. Think about how long that is. Like 14 hours. 
From morning until evening, he expounded to them, testifying to two things, the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus. And look at this, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. In other words, Paul lays it out there before these, these Jews. Here's about the kingdom of God and here's about Jesus. And he does so from the authority that they already agree on, which is the law and prophets. Now, I think this is a beautiful strategy for us today as we share the gospel. We don't want to engage with people on, on like an uncommon basis, but we want to engage with people on a common ground basis. I'll give you an example. Whenever I get to share the gospel with folks, it usually, I usually try to find common ground. I don't start with like, hey, do you know that you break the Ten Commandments, you wretched sinner? <laughs> and by the way, the best strategy to share the gospel is you got to be able to say the, the line, can I share some good news with you? That's the most beautiful thing to start with. Can I share the good news with you? Or can I share good news with you? And if it, then the next thing you say is you're a wretched sinner and unless you repent, you're going to hell. If you notice that's not good news, therefore you haven't shared the gospel. You get that? Because the gospel is good news. So whatever you say to somebody, hey, can I share some good news with you? So generally how, this is how it works. One thing that builds common ground with every human being on the face of the earth is this, pain and suffering and hardship. Every single person I've ever met has had something like that. So not too uh, long ago, somebody was sharing with me that they were going through a really tough time. A whole bunch of stuff in their life was all broke down and just messed up. And they were apologizing for bringing their kid late to this function that we had. And I said, no problem. And I said, tell me about what's going on. And so he laid into it, man, here's what's going on, brokenness, blah, 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 blah. I'm going, wow, that stinks, man. I'm sorry to hear that. Do you mind if I share some good news with you? And he goes, yeah, anything would help. All right. Thank you for asking. So here's what I did. I asked a simple question. You acknowledge that this situation is broken. Yeah. How do you know it's broken? How do you know that it's, that's just not the way it's supposed to be? His response was, everybody knows that's not how it's supposed to be. Where did you get that concept of how it's supposed to be? He said, oh, I don't know. I said, can I suggest something? Um, I, you know me, I'm a pastor, and it's always awkward when I coach baseball because eventually the kids and the parents, eventually we're going to have a Jesus conversation. It's, so I'm like, can, I'm a pastor, you know this. Can I, can I suggest something to you? I think you were made in the image of God, and because you were made in the image of God, you understand the concept of truth and goodness and beauty. And in this situation, you understand that this situation is not true, it's not good, and it's not beautiful, it's broken. But the whole reason why you understand the concept of unbroken is because God has placed that there for you. And so now you're, the experience of brokenness is just one more line of evidence that God is real, man. It's one more line of evidence that you understand exactly what the Bible talks about. God created everything good, and yet because of sin it was broken. Here's the good news, though, man. Jesus Christ is God's son sent into the world. And according to the Bible, he's come to reconcile and redeem all things to himself, things in heaven and things on earth. There's a promise in Scripture, actually, which is this, that God is going to make all things new again. It doesn't mean he's going to make all new things, but he's going to make all the things that are there new again. There's going to be a restoration. There's going to be a redemption. There's going to be a reconciliation. And you know what? That same rec reconciliation and redemption, that can happen to you. And that's why Jesus came. That's good news. Of course, his response was not what I had hoped. But nonetheless, he heard the good news. 
that this is broke, but Jesus came to fix it. And there's coming a day when he consummates his kingdom in a final and full way that we will be in his presence with everlasting joy. That day's coming. But do you notice it wasn't like a, hey, did you break the Ten Commandments? What's wrong with you, you wretched sinner? Here's good news. Repent or else you're going to hell. Do you notice how the story I told was different? So let's look at verse 24. You know, Paul said the law of Moses and the prophets, that's our source of common ground and authority. Brothers and sisters, you have a source of common ground and authority with your neighbors. It's usually the brokenness of this world, which very few people will deny. Okay? Simply ask the question, why is it broken? How do you know it's broken? And what is the concept of being unbroken? And where in the world do you get that from? And then what's the solution? And guess what? We as Christians, we got all those answers. Awesome. All right, let's move on. Verse 24. Now, here's the responses. Some were convinced by what he said, but others, they disbelieved. But not only did they disbelieve, look at what happens. Verse 25. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul made one statement. And so it's not just what he's about to say here. It's actually the very last statement. Verse 28. But let's read it together. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your forefathers through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, you will indeed hear but never understand. You will indeed see but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their eyes they can barely hear. And their, eyes they have and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you, Jews, that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. Now, remember that theme through the book of Acts? Some Jews were like, what? The Gentiles are gross and despicable. They're subhuman. And Paul said, yeah, but they're getting the gospel. And at that point, the people left. They take their ball and go home. They're like, nope. And it reminds me that, you know what? There's always three responses to the gospel. There's always three. And I love Jimmy Scroggins' book, uh, Turning Everyday Conversations into Gospel Conversations. And he takes Acts 17, starting in verse 32. And here's what he does. He identifies three responses to the gospel. Look at this in verse 32. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, here's the first one. Some mocked. That's a red light response to the gospel, which means, nope, I'm not hearing it anymore. But there's a yellow light response to the gospel, which is proceed with caution. You know driving. You go get what I'm getting at. Red light, no way. Yellow, proceed with caution. It's this. But others said, we will hear you again about this. Okay. Verse 33. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed. That's green light response to the gospel. There's always three responses. Get out of my face. Hey, can we meet again? Uh, that's interesting. Or I believe. But guess what? The, you, can, you can just put the responsibility. Don't, don't place it on your shoulders because it's not for you to decide the outcome. God is sovereign over the human heart, and he will decide how people respond to it. Remember, he opened Lydia's heart. He can open anyone's heart. So the pressure is off our shoulders. We just faithfully proclaim and, the, and leave the results up to God. Red light, yellow light, green light. And that's what happens with them. They red light, they're gone. They're like, this guy has lost it. Now remember, we as disciples, we are sent to be faithful witnesses of the gospel of the kingdom of God in Jesus Christ. And that is through the Holy Spirit. Remember, that's the theme of the book of Acts. As faithful witnesses, we are to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom of God, which is in Christ Jesus, but we're to do so through the power of the Holy Spirit. And then we get to the last two verses of the book. And here we see three things that Paul embodies for us of what it means to be a disciple. And I love this. 
We'll go through it. Here it goes. He lived there two whole years at his own expense. So Paul rented his own house for two years. And look at this. He welcomed all who came to him, which tells me first and foremost that disciples utilize hospitality to, to lovingly serve their neighbor and cultivate relationships. That's what disciples do is we utilize hospitality to love our neighbors and cultivate relationship. That's what disciples do. Okay? So you can't play off duty to that if you're a follower of Jesus. You can't think hospitality is optional. It's not optional. It's commanded in Scripture twice explicitly. You want to love people, be hospitable. <laughs> but what I love about this is it also touches on the ethics of the kingdom of God. And here's what I mean. Um, when it comes to being a Christian, there are certain things that are required of you, not in order to get saved, but because you have been saved. And some of those things is lovingly serving other people. And in fact, Matthew 25 talks about how Jesus uh, refers to the end of the age when everyone will be resurrected, the just in one direction, the unjust in another. He calls them the goats and the sheep. And he says, those who are sheep, those who are resurrected to eternal life, this is why they're resurrected to eternal life. Verse 34 of Matthew 25. Then the king will say to those on his right, that means the sheep, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For, and here's the reason why, because I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And of course, the righteous will say, when did we ever see you, Jesus, like that? And he concludes in verse 40. Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. You see, in Jesus' mind, one of the telltale signs of whether or not we truly love God and love other people is how we are hospitable. And you can see that Jesus is deathly serious about hospitality. In fact, he says, whatever you, if you have anyone among you who is naked, clothe them for my sake. If they're thirsty, give them water for my sake. If they're hungry, give them food for my sake. If they don't have a home, welcome them for my sake because whatever you do to them, you're doing to me. They're made in my image. They're my people. Love them. Be hospitable to them. And you see, it's hard for us as good Americans to, to like take this because we are so inhospitable. Think about it. Garage door openers. We're driving out. Get that thing up. Get in the garage. Shut that. Yes. I don't have to talk to nobody. Fence boards. You want to put up fences, right? If they fall down, you feel the urge. I got to put a fence up. What if I see my neighbor? Let's get 10-foot fence boards instead of the eight. You see what I'm getting at? Not only that, but, man, we just, we just have the concept, the idea of opening your home for people to come in. Are you kidding me? That's weird. And, and so here's the thing. Because it's weird to us doesn't mean it's untrue. It just means we're jacked up. Does that make sense? Okay, so hospitality is commanded. Hospitality is a warm welcoming of people and utilizing your resources to meet their needs and cultivate relationships. There's no opportunity for us to not engage in that as Christians. I hope you feel the urgency of it. If not, then I've done a bad job. 
But hospitality is a fabulous strategy for proclaiming the gospel because in proclaiming uh, the gospel um, and then also doing hospitality, we convey to a watching world just how hospitable our God truly is. Where we say, you know what, this is going to cost me a lot to invite you over, but I don't care. I will gladly spend my resources on you. Man, that is awesome. Second thing we learn about Paul is that disciples proclaim the kingdom of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. You notice that in verse 31, he proclaims the kingdom of God and teaches about the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what disciples do. Okay? So if you're not doing that, the only legitimate question you might want to ask yourself is, am I a disciple? Okay, because so, that's what disciples do. Disciples make disciples. They proclaim the kingdom of God. And how we do that best, I think, is Matthew 6, Seek first the kingdom of God and the rest will be added to you. You guys remember that context where people are worried about shelter and food and water and they're like, how am I going to get all this stuff? And Jesus said, no, 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 stop that. That's not the priority in your life. The priority in your life is seek first the kingdom of God. The rest will be added to you. But what if I'm hospital, hospitable and I, and I run out of money and food? Don't worry about that. Pursue the kingdom of God. God will provide for you. But not only that, Philippians 3.20 to 21, one of some of my favorite verses. Our citizenship, our mentality of where we belong, what our nation is, is we are citizens of heaven. And from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will come and transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power in which he subjects all things to himself. Jesus is coming someday. And these messed up, lowly bodies that are, you know, you know what I'm talking about. Hair's growing where it used to not. Back fat's coming in. Things breaking down. You need replacement surgery. You understand what's going on. We're decaying rapidly. But there's coming a day where we're getting a resurrected body. And guess what? We will not spoil. We will not rot. And we will not fade. We will be kept in heaven forever in a glorified, resurrected body. That is good. So that is our heaven. That is our citizenship is heaven and that's why we wait for Jesus to return. And lastly is this, disciples live boldly, confident in the power and presence of God. And you can see that in the rest of the verse that he taught with all boldness and without hindrance. And the reason we do that is because we have the promise made sure. Jesus himself said, I will be with you even to the end of the age. And guess what? Jesus ain't no liar. He promised it. So it's true. Trust it. All right, next verse. Do you notice how empty <laughs> Acts 28 ends? Well, what happened to Paul? What happened to Luke? Well, what happened to the church in Rome? That's it? And you, you know that. You, you've watched movies before where there's no resolution at the end, and you're kind of going, oh, no, that was a terrible movie. <laughs> no, no, I want to know what happens next. You've been there before? The inquisitive mind goes, what, what, what happened? What happened to Paul? What happened to the church in Rome? What happened to, to Luke? What happened to Aristarchus? What happened? And I think intentionally God has left the Acts 28 verse 31 with no resolution at the end on purpose. This is a fabulous book about God's dramatic redemption of sinful man. And the book of Acts is a dramatic, historical book of God's redemption through the power of the Holy Spirit, the proclamation of the gospel, the multiplication of disciples, and the faithful witnessing 
of all those who God has called to himself. And you know what? The reason why there's no ending is because that dramatic story is still being written today. You and I are called to be the faithful witnesses sent out to multiply the disciples. You and I are participating in the continuation of the redemptive story of God in the lives of people all around us. The story ain't over. And I love the conclusion of Acts because it basically implores us, hey, we got business to attend to. You know, when Jesus talks about um, the kingdom of God, one of the parables he tells is how there's this uh, merchant and now he goes off on a far trip. And what Jesus is talking about is his two comings, the first coming at Christmas and the second coming when he returns again. And he said, what you need to do in between the two comings, from Christmas until Jesus returns again, what you need to do is engage in the king's business. And I love that thought. Brothers and sisters, if you are a disciple, we got to engage in the king's business. Let us go as faithful witnesses of the gospel of the kingdom of God and Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit. And if you're not a Christian here today, you have to understand this. We as Christians are not like perfect people. In fact, one of the prerequisites to be a Christian is the acknowledgement of your imperfection. First of all, you have to say, well, I'm, I'm terrible. <laughs> Step one. Then from there you say, I need somebody as a mediator who can, who, can, who can mediate for me a sinful human being in the presence of a holy God? And who is it that could possibly stand between sinful man and a holy God? None other than Jesus Christ, the person who is fully God and fully man. And he bridges that gap. And he has come for us to rescue us from the perils of the brokenness of sin. And we have the privilege as Christians of sharing that good news. Not what you must do to be saved, but what God has done in order to rescue you. What a beautiful story. And I pray if you're not a believer that you would entertain the idea. And if not entertain, you would wholesale believe it. Because it would change your life. So Father, help us, I pray. We are lowly people, we are needy, we are broken in many ways, we are desperate, and yet in all of our desperation and neediness, Lord, you have provided for us an abundance beyond what we could either, even comprehend or explain. Every aspect of what it means to be human and in our brokenness and frailty, you have addressed those issues and you have promised us full redemption. Already today, those of us who are Christians have forgiveness. And there's a day coming in the future where we will receive resurrected bodies and a new creation. Where you will dry every tear. That you will undo every wrong. That you will make right every injustice. There's coming a day where there's no more pain and no more sorrows. No more death. And you have proven that by rising from the dead victoriously. Death no longer has a hold on you, and it won't have a hold on us. As John says, though we die, yet we shall live. God, help us as your church here at Golden Hills to get about the king's business, to proclaim the good news, which is of great joy for all the people. Jesus Christ has come. 
thank you for that redemption. Thank you for the book of Acts. God, thank you for the pleasure it's been to preach it. And I pray that you would edify your people. In Jesus' name.